Well, friends, welcome. The start of the new quarter is upon us, and I hope you all had fantastic Christmas and New Year, and uh, you're ready to start afresh, and that's what we're going to be doing here. Uh, a lot of times, you know, New Year is a time of new resolution and changes and things like that, so um, this quarter we're going to try something very different in real life that we haven't done before. This entire quarter, uh, we're going to spend in the Gospel of Mark. And, and the theme is going to be Via Dolorosa. And what you saw up here is Via Dolorosa is uh, Latin for the way of suffering. And it is a name of a really long, winding street in Jerusalem. That is, uh, scholars are looking at the Gospels and are trying to map out the possible path which Jesus has followed carrying the cross on the way to Calvary. Supposedly, this is the road that he had traveled. And the theme of this entire quarter is going to be Via Dolorosa, following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And you might ask, why the Gospel of Mark? Why? You know, it's, uh, as Christians, we know that we have four different Gospels. And sometimes it could be a stumbling block from some people. You know, why tell the same story four times? What's the point of that? You know, the joke loses its flavor and zest when it's repeated over and over again. And what I would look at as, as, as we look at the four different Gospels, it's kind of like the way of looking at different kinds of movies. The Gospel of Luke is like your epic novel. It's like your Harry Potter. You know, it's one of those things where the guy tells you, go get a big bowl of popcorn. No, 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 not that one. Get a bigger one. This is going to take a while. We'll be watching it for a long, long time. And it's almost like Luke is trying to tell you everything he knows about Jesus. And he runs out of time and space. It's almost like he's hogging the paper. You know, people are like, dude, just give other people space to write. But no, then he has to write an addendum. He needs space for the book of Acts. Then you have Matthew. And Matthew is kind of like, you know, Woody Allen movies. You know, Midnight in Paris. It's kind of, a, it's classy, it's sophisticated, but he has an agenda. You know, the Midnight in Paris, this new movie. If you like Owen Wilson, and if you like Paris, it's a great movie. But if you don't want to move to Paris and become a writer, it's not for you. You know, same way Matthew writes his gospel, he tells the story of Jesus, but in a way that he wants to make Jews out of us. I mean, over and over again, he's going to go in and say, it was said, it's fulfilled. It's said, it's fulfilled. And at the end of it, it's kind of like, dude, would you stop quoting the Old Testament and tell us the story of Jesus? And then comes John. I mean, John, it's kind of like, you know, will be the equivalent of Robin Hood men in tights. You know, like the Monty Python, Holy Grail. It's kind of like, he's going to tell the story of Jesus, but he's going to twist things around. He's going to bring different genres in. And he's going to tell a story in an awkward kind of way where you look and you say like, that doesn't make sense. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't. But at the end of it, he puts together this amazing story. that, And he doesn't hide it. In chapter 20, John tells us, 
This is written so that you would believe. And he says, if for that I have to wear tights, I will. Whatever it takes. If I have to mix genres and bring in different kinds of ways of writing, I'll do that. And then comes Mark. You know, Mark is the oldest gospel. And it's the shortest one. You know, it's like a Pepsi commercial. It comes at you really fast, real quick. It's jam-packed. And it has an impact on you. It's kind of like somebody walked into McDonald's and grabbed the first employee and said, Dude, we got this flip camera and we got $20. We're going to make a movie about Jesus. Are you in? And he's like, Sure. <laughs> and then he gets everything wrong. He gets it wrong. I mean, it's kind of like he puts this detective bit, you know, this like who did it bit at the beginning of the story. You know, it's kind of like telling the Harry Potter story, but saying like, right at the beginning, saying like, you know what? You're going to hang on for several years. You're going to keep coming back and keep paying at $12.50 every year as we release a new movie. But let me tell you from the beginning where this is going to go. You know, at the end, Harry Potter and Hermione are going to get hooked up and, you know, they're going to live as muggles happily in somewhere highlands of Scotland. Well, that's not how it ends. So if you haven't read it yet, I didn't spoil it for you, but... That's what he does, and that's what we're going to start today. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, first 13 verses. Mark is going to tell us things that people, the characters in the gospel don't know. That the readers of the gospel, this gospel, are in a privileged position. From the get-go, he's going to tell the readers that where this story is going to go, what this whole thing is about, is that the king is here. The king has arrived. And he says, now you can stick around for 16 chapters. I'm going to roll it out for you. So let's listen to him start out his story. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I stand my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and Uh, ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we enter your presence as a community. And Lord, as we embark on this journey this quarter, we desperately long to know Jesus better. Father, at the end of the day, 
Would you give us the privilege of knowing your son a little bit better? And come what may, Father, we know that there will be enough. So we invite your spirit to work in our hearts as we sit under the light of this gospel. And may he do his work in our hearts, challenging us to follow this king down the path of Via Dolorosa. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark writes somewhere around 50 AD. And most likely what scholars are telling us is that he's at this point in Rome. And he's writing to the church in Rome. And in many ways, the church is looking at Mark and saying, Mark, tell us the story of Jesus. But tell us in such a way that we get to participate. Tell us the story about Jesus in a way that will make sense of our lives. And what's crucial about their lives at this point is that the persecution of the church is starting to flare up at this point. You see, as Mark writes, he has one eye on the story of Jesus, but he has one eye on his community. As he writes this, he hears the knocks on the doors of his friends who are being dragged out of their homes and pushed onto the Colosseum. And they're facing severe persecution for the sake of the gospel. And he writes the story of Jesus. And out of all the things that he could select, all the things he can say about Jesus, he's going to construct the story of Jesus in such a way that will make sense of their lives. In the same way as we enter into this gospel, we hear this. We enter the words and we enter into their world, but with one eye on our own world. Asking the Lord to make sense of our lives in the light of this gospel. And in some ways, what Mark does, he opens up his gospel by showing us his mystery bag. You know, and I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of a mystery bag. Maybe some of you did it in preschool or kindergarten or something like that. But my two little ones started preschool this year. And one of the things that they do is that as a class, they rotate, and different ones get to take home the mystery bag, and they're given a letter. And you have to put something in this mystery bag that starts with that letter, and then when you come to class the next day, you have to give your friend some clues without showing them what's in the mystery bag. It's something that is significant in your own life, something that tells something about you. And there to guess what's in it. So yesterday, our three-year-old, Greta, got the mystery bag. And the mystery had to start with the letter B. So this morning, her and our, her five-year-old brother, Danny, had a rousing discussion about the object named Bacho <laughs> that they were going to put in this mystery bag and bring to class. And they were trying to figure out how to fit this 300-pound object into this small mystery bag. And they were facing severe disappointment in life when their mom suggested the use of the different object called a book. But in a similar way, Mark opens his gospel and he says, I'm going to give you some clues. I'm going to give you some clues of what's in God's mystery bag. And the first clue that he gives them, he gives them this prophecy from the Old Testament. 
prophecy that says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. A voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And if you're seeped in the Old Testament, you realize, and Mark tells us that this is coming from Isaiah. But really what it does, it's Mark weaves three different texts. He brings in Malachi, he brings Exodus, but mainly it reflects Isaiah chapter 40. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 40, you realize that what this text is really all about is telling Israel who is in exile that their sins have been paid for and that it's a time of exodus, that it's a time to return home. But more than that, it not only is just talking about the physical return from Babylon to the promised land, but if you look at the entire book of Isaiah, this concept of the way of the Lord is used more broadly in the end time categories to talk about God becoming the king and entering into the flow of history and taking the rightful throne and then his people responding to him in a way that is appropriate and consistent with his kingship. Some Jews came back from the exile. But in the first century, 70% of them were still living somewhere outside the promised land. Isaiah paints the picture that Jerusalem will become the center of the known universe. And even though some of them returned from exile, Jerusalem remained a political backwater. Isaiah made promises that one day a Davidic king would rule and reign over them. And yet, as they looked around, they saw Herod, who was an Edomite. He wasn't even a fully representative of the Jewish nation. And many Jews in the first century still were perceiving themselves as being in the exile. That in many ways they saw that this return from exile hasn't taken place yet. And they were on a tiptoes, anticipating God to break into the flow of history and finally do what he promised he would do. And Mark is saying, whatever's in the mystery bag is what God promised. Not only that, but then he pulls out the second clue. And it's John the Baptist. And he's wearing this goofy outfit. And he's eating this strange high-carb diet of locust and honey. (laughs) And he's in a wilderness. And you're wondering, okay, if you're going to start something, if God is going to do something significant, why get this strange-looking dude in a wilderness? Well, you've got to read this through the pages of the Old Testament. When the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi... When the curtain goes down on chapter 4, next to the last verse, God is saying, a day will come when I will send Elijah before the day of the Lord. 
when the curtains open on the Gospel of Mark, there is John the Baptist dressed in the prophetic garb of Elijah. And he is out in the wilderness. Now, you got to understand, in the Jewish mind, wilderness, it wasn't the scary place. Wilderness was the place where you met with God. You see, when Israel came out of the first exile in Egypt, at Mount Sinai, God met Israel. God gave them the law at Mount Sinai and betrothed them to himself. So every time you wanted to start something new, any false prophet in Israel that rose up, immediately they went out to the wilderness. Because that's where you started new things. That's where God showed up. And when Mark opens up his story, he says, let me give you a second clue. What's in this mystery bag has its beginning in the wilderness? And it begins with Elijah. And he tells us that when people hear these two clues, their response is that they're coming in droves. He says, all of Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem. I mean, this guy can exaggerate with the best of them. I mean, did every single person come? No, but he's saying a lot of them. A lot of them, when they hear these clues, they drop everything and they come in droves. Why? Because they want to be baptized for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. That's a fancy word. You can go and use it at a coffee shop next tomorrow. Metanoia really means to turn around. It's like, you know, you're living on North Campus. And, you know, you decide you want to go down to the short north for a gallery hop. So you grab your little buck ID, your freshman sweetheart, and you head to High Street and grab the Coda bus. And as you're going down south, you're expecting to see certain signs, certain clues. You expect the number one Chinese restaurant on your left. You expect the union on the right. You expect potbellies on the left. But instead, you are seeing the plasma donation place. You see Nancy's home cooking. You see Ragorama, and you see Mozart's bakery. And you realize that you went to the wrong direction on High Street. You are headed north. And when you see signs for Nancy's home cooking, you know it's time to pull down on the little rope and get out of that bus. That's metanoia. You are going in the wrong direction. It's time to turn around. You see, what Mark is telling us is that all these people were suddenly getting the clues that their life was heading in the wrong direction. And they wanted to get off the bus. One of the most dramatic stories of people being fed up with the stories that they're living. People who have been fed up with the way they've been living life was about a year ago. There's an Austrian businessman by the name of Karl Rabiter, and we have a picture of him up here. And a year ago, he stunned the business world when he decided to give away his entire fortune because he was killing him. Gone was this $2.5 million villa in Swiss Alps. Gone was his $1.5 million house in Provence. Gone was his $100,000 custom-made Audi. 
Gone was his entire $5 million fortune. And listen to the words of what he said. He said this, They tell us to buy stuff for our well-being. And it doesn't make us happy, so we buy more. It still doesn't make us happy. And it makes us easy to rule. We're like sheep with a barking dog to the left of us, making us anxious about the global financial crisis and the fact that we could lose our jobs. And another barking dog to the right, warning us about the need for expensive insurance in case we fall ill. So we work for the future without ever being able to live for the day. For a long time, I believed that more wealth and luxury automatically meant more happiness. I came from a very poor family where the rules were to work more, to achieve more material things. And I applied this for many years. Yet more and more I heard the words, stop what you are doing now. All this luxury and consumerism and start your real life. I had the feeling that I was working as a slave for the things I didn't wish for or need. However, for many years I was simply not brave enough to give up all the trappings of my comfortable existence. But he saw the signs. You know, the sign of his marriage falling apart. The sign of his soul shriveling. The sign of him losing joy. And he pulled the plug. He said, it's time to get off the bus. Listen to the words of Thomas Aquinas. He says this, Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. Friends, there is no saying yes to Jesus without first saying no to every other story that clamors for your and my allegiance. And friends, even though we're all followers of Jesus and we all signed up, if we were to pause and ask ourselves a question, are there aspects of our lives, are there portions of our story that are not consistent who we claim to be? Are there areas in our lives, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our priorities, or whether it's our plans for the future, that we need to yank the rope down and say, it's time to get off the bus. It's time to turn around. It's time for a fresh start. And what is that we will find when we turn around for a fresh start? Mark tells us that we find a king. We find a king that is unlike any other kings you've ever seen. He is the kind of a king that is marked with three different things. First, he is marked with the presence of the Holy Spirit. That means he doesn't need to use political power. He doesn't need to enslave. He doesn't need to cajole. He doesn't need to abuse and control. Second thing he doesn't need is he doesn't need a spotlight. He doesn't need to win a popularity contest. When Jesus shows up, The heavens open up and he hears the voice of the Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And third and finally, he is the kind of a king that will go into that wilderness and he will face Satan rather than insulating himself like the most rulers in the first century would do. In Jesus, God finally confronts every corrupt authority, every human abusing power. Any individual, any government, any institution, any structure that exploits humanity, God is saying it is over. The rightful king has shown up. And he invites you and I to join him. Stephen Lawhead, in his article, Christ the King, tells a story of a cannibal tribe. This was the article written back in the 60s, and uh, he was one of the missionaries, and so he was telling some of those things that he has experienced, and he tells the story that, you know, one day, as the sun starts to rise, a group of men from the village enter a hut. They grab the young man who doesn't fight, who doesn't resist, and they drag him out to the boat. And they take him over to the island. And as the rays of sun are coming up, they're circling him around, and one of them takes a knife and plunges into the young man's neck. As the blood gushes out, they take the bowl and place it underneath it and gather the blood. And as this young man dies, they rip his heart wide open and they grab the still pulsating heart and they hand it to one of their own. And he eats it and they pass it around. And then he takes this bowl of blood and he drinks it and he does the same thing to pass it around. And as we look at this gruesome scene, immediately we ask the question, what has this guy done? What kind of a crime has he committed? What is he guilty of? And the answer is of nothing. And he's not a criminal. He's their king. You see, this tribe has a belief that their king is the means of their survival. That every year a king would give his blood that would guarantee the village's survival. As they drink his blood and as they eat his heart, they're guaranteed that there is a future. And the guy that takes the first bite is the next king. And the ritual repeats itself every year. See, those cannibals have something to teach you and I about the true kingship. The true kingship is not about hoarding power. It's not abusing people. But it's about giving and sacrificing. And yes, journeying down via Dolorosa for your and my sins. And that's Jesus. That's our king. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are stunned by who you are. You are unlike any king that the world had ever seen. And Lord, we're aware of the fact that Mark opens the gospel saying, here's the gospel, the good news 
In essence, he's making a political statement. A king has come to power. And yes, you have, Lord. You have come to power. You are indeed the king. You are the king who gives his life. You are the king who overshadows us. You are the king who provides for us. You are the king who nourishes us. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would have courage to pull down a plug on all the other stories that clamor for our attention. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would have courage to get off that bus that's been headed in a wrong direction. Say no to the world and say yes to you, our King. Amen.